on carrier moves is the term that they use for their big bets, right? And John Ledger and team had a, a mission and a goal of launching a new uncarrier move every three to six months, which was a pace that the organization before never even believed they could achieve. And importantly, is a pace that AT&T and Verizon could not keep up with. T-Mobile would launch an uncarrier move. It would take AT&T and Verizon six months just to get organized, have a meeting to discuss how they're gonna respond. By the time they've even had that meeting, the next move's coming out, the next move's coming out, the next move's coming out. The only way to solve that problem is to grow productivity, to innovate within our economy. This next 25 years, what you know I've framed as the hyper-digital era, is going to be the past digital transition, digital transformation era, 10 to 100x. Reading one part of the book inspired me to do something for our own business here at GeekWire that I think might be an interesting thing to discuss as just an example, uh, uh -oh. briefly. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report every day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the most interesting stories and trends in the news. This week, Big Bets. My guests are the authors of a new book called Big Bet Leadership, Your Transformation Playbook for Winning in the Hyper-Digital Era. It's fascinating to see how the companies in the Seattle area play into this book. Microsoft, Amazon, T-Mobile, and the authors are John Rossman and Kevin McCaffrey. It's great to have you both here. Todd, thanks for having us. Great to see you again. Great to be here, Todd. Thanks for having us. Just to introduce you both, John Rossman is a former Amazon executive where he was a key figure in launching Amazon's marketplace with a career spanning over three decades in technology and business innovation. After Amazon, he's authored books on digital innovation, including The Amazon Way and Think Like Amazon. He's also served as an advisor to major organizations and founded Rossman Partners to help clients with digital transformations. Kevin McCaffrey has experience in strategic roles at T-Mobile and Google Ads, where he contributed to significant growth initiatives and supported the execution of transformation strategies. He's also consulted with McKinsey & Company, assisting Fortune 500 executives, and currently works with Rossman Partners in research and development efforts. John, big bets. What are they? And why did you decide that now was the time to write about them? A big bet is inherently, you know, they come by lots of different names, a growth strategy, a, a market repositioning, a digital transformation, an AI strategy, an operating change. These are all initiatives or strategies that have high potential for impact, but we know that the vast majority of these fails. That's what a big bet is. And why now is because we're entering an era where more change is happening, more disruption is happening. And so the ability to separate the future winners and losers is going to come from the ability to actually make bold moves. And so paradoxically, we know that the vast majority of these big bets fail, but yet we have to do more of them. Well, that's a, that's a tricky value proposition right there. So we wrote Big Bet Leadership so that you can be more aggressive, have more ambition, but minimize the downside risk relative to these moves. And over the years, if you look at the companies that have been durable, that have stuck around, they've made these big bets early on before they needed to. And it's transformed companies like Microsoft and T-Mobile and Amazon and SpaceX. 
can that be learned? Is that a system that people can learn? Because that's essentially what you're trying to provide with this book. What do you say on that, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. That's our philosophy is that taking a systematic approach to this prepares you for success. Really, the key is that you can't wait until you need a big bet to place it. And what the companies that do this really well do is that they essentially buy future optionality for moving it with different industry trends as they unfold. The reality is that these trends hit so fast today that your reaction time has to get shorter and shorter and shorter. If you haven't already positioned yourself by placing early bets that you keep small, if you haven't already positioned yourself to be able to go left or go right, once the industry trends start to become clear and the market opportunity becomes clear, it's too late. Somebody else is going to take the opportunity. And so that's where thinking ahead and placing those small bets that buy you that optionality and buy you the ability to move quickly, as you've seen Satya do with OpenAI and some of his responses where they move fast on these ideas, that's going to be critically important. And it does take a systematic approach because what it means is that in the background, what we all see through the news is the big bets that get placed. But what it means is in the background, they're managing a portfolio of smaller bets to give them the position they need to actually place those bigger bets that, that drive the, the impact. 90% of which you'll never hear about because they actually decided it's a good idea, but it's not the idea to proceed on. And they pick one out of 10 or less to actually go big on. I've got a lot of questions for you, but first off, how did you two end up working together? Yeah, so it actually goes back to my time at T-Mobile. I was in the strategy team at T-Mobile, and we were thinking about what's next for growth for T-Mobile. We had seen 10 years of industry-leading growth delivered based on the success of the big bets that John Ledger and his team had placed. Uh, this was a company that was on its last legs when the, the acquisition by AT&T fell apart. The parent company, Deutsche Telekom, was speaking publicly about how they wished they could just get rid of this asset, but they couldn't. And nobody saw the turnaround coming that John Ledger led with the executive team at T-Mobile. I had the opportunity and the fortune to be able to witness the way John Ledger and his team managed uh, essentially this operating model that could deliver one big bet after another. But what we also recognized at the time was that T-Mobile could not continue to grow the way it had been by only continuing to take share within its industry, within the wireless industry. They needed to add this capability of placing big bets in adjacent markets and building new businesses. And so the chief strategy officer at T-Mobile, Peter Ewens, said, look, we, we can't be operating in a bubble here. We can't be in an echo chamber trying to teach ourselves how to do that. It is a new muscle for us. We're really great at placing big bets within our core business. How do we figure out how to go do this in a way that helps us expand it to new businesses? Uh, and we should get someone from the outside, an external expert who has seen this and importantly, who has done this, who can come in and keep us honest, right? Not do it for us, but to keep us honest, to give us advice, to point the way and to be kind of that truth speaker when you get a little bit in that echo chamber. So I started looking for that person and came across John's books, uh, The Amazon Way, happened to just email him and, uh, and he responded. And then we got together and John came in as a senior advi uh, innovation advisor to T-Mobile. And John, from my reading of the book and the descriptions of your role in this advisory capacity with T-Mobile, you were really there to kind of be the, well, hard ass. You were there to be the skeptic. That's, that was my impression of it. I, I, I had a former partner who one time said to me, he goes, he goes, he goes, John, you, you ride the fine line between being a consultant and an insultant uh, and, uh, and everything. And so, and so, and so, you know, but I think that that gets the, to the heart of the challenge of change in most companies is the willingness 
to have really hard debate and that compromise is typically the worst type of decision-making process that you can have when it comes to new ideas or making a few limited choices about the things you could do. There's always lots of really good ideas, but it's about gaining clarity about the idea that we are going to put forward. And Kevin and team were just fantastic to understand. My role was to push and prod and to help prompt the thinking and the clarity of thought. You'll recognize a lot of the backbone from Amazon's, you know, working backwards process throughout this. We really took that, kind of shredded it apart, made it much more deliberate and clear. Since T-Mobile, which represents the vast majority of enterprises, doesn't have the DNA that Amazon has. And so that's really been a big part of my experience over the past almost 20 years since I've left Amazon, which is how do you delicately take concepts from a company like Amazon, not to try to be Amazon, but to incorporate to make the better part of you, especially when it comes to making change. And that's the essence of the book, which is which is how do you make major transformations and treat them for what they are, which is significantly different than your other types of projects and programs that you tend to run. And I know one of the things you point out in the book is that a big bet is different than betting the company. And that really resonated with me because I don't know how many times I heard some of Microsoft's prior CEOs talk about a bet the company initiative. And one of your points in the book is, if you're doing something that puts your company at risk, you're doing it too late. How would you compare and contrast a big bet versus a bet the company initiative? I always joke that you know one of Amazon's leadership principles is think big, but I think they forgot part of that leadership principle, which is actually to bet small, right? And people get that confused. Even Amazon, I think, has gotten that a little bit confused. It is to have a bold vision and to look for the next thing and create a compelling vision to, to lead and follow others. But figure out how do you actually identify the high-risk, high-value components of those, bring them forward, figure out a way to test and prove them better so that by the time you're making the big commitments, it actually is a a very tilted bet. Like, you know what the outcome is, right? The table is tilted at that point. And so it truly isn't a bet. And so many companies get this completely backwards, which is they create some type of vision, but then they go bold on it, whether it's really in resources or just the announcements to it. I think GE is kind of the prime example that I look at when they were leading the the predicts where they made all types of bold predictions and commitments internally and externally to the street. And they just had no basis for actually finding out like real customers, real use cases, how's it going to work? What needs to change, not just beyond the technology for a company like that, to become a solution provider in that type of era. And they got the playbook completely backwards. And that's what we're trying to do with this book, which is to address the major levers for senior leaders that they need to think of differently to be not just successful, but as we put it, like we want you to be systematic. We want you to become a big bet legend. And so we kind of model the book off of four who we consider, we know we've either worked for or studied Big Bet legends, which are John Ledger, T-Mobile, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Satya Nadella. And we've tried to create a framework and some followable approaches to actually understand your job as a leader, which is to lead transformations. 
And I want to talk about some of the plays in the playbook a little bit later on because you're very specific. And I think if I were to go back and try and adopt the Big Bet Leadership playbook, I would reread the book, frankly. And that's one of the nice things about the book is it's very manageable. I know you've called it the TLDR approach, but it's also very specific down to the point of these are the words that should be at the beginning of this memo that you send. Of these companies that we've mentioned, Kevin, your experience with T-Mobile comes into play here. Can you talk about how T-Mobile has implemented this kind of approach? Are there products or initiatives that people out there would know at T-Mobile that came from this kind of approach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's actually a term for it, uncarrier moves, right? It's this branded term that has come out of T-Mobile. Uncarrier moves is the term that they use for their big bets, right? And John Ledger and team had a, a mission and a goal of launching a new uncarrier move every three to six months, which was a pace that the organization before never even believed they could achieve. And importantly, is a pace that at and and Verizon could not keep up with. T-Mobile would launch an uncarrier move. It would take at and and Verizon six months just to get organized, have a meeting to discuss how they're going to respond. By the time they've even had that meeting, the next move's coming out, the next move's coming out, the next move's coming out. And what I learned from that was that what was key to, to success was that John Ledger and team built a systematic approach that was a no compromises approach to launching these big bets. Now, if you look at the details of that approach, is it exactly what's in our book? No. And would we say that you have to implement exactly what's in our book for every single company? No, there's adaptation that has to happen. And certainly it looks different than the model that's underneath Amazon under Bezos or what Satya has done at Microsoft. But what I think they all have in common is if you look at the approach, it has two key features. One, systematic, and two, uncompromising, right? No shortcuts are tolerated. No laziness, no, well, we'll, we'll do great on this element, but that element's maybe not that important. Ledger held people's feet to the fire. If, if you were working on an uncarrier move, no compromises allowed, no delays allowed, Everybody from finance to legal to the business teams, everybody had to show up and put their best effort in. And I think that is something you'd see across Big Bet Legends. Yeah, it, it's really about prioritization. And one of the things that I've learned a lot from Kevin is like how to keep the main thing the main thing. And so, you know, we outlined kind of three critical habits, which are create clarity, maintain velocity, and accelerate risk and value. That maintain velocity one is a tricky one because most organizations start off with vigor and enthusiasm and, you know, we're going to go, but then they quickly slow down into just another project. And that's what Kevin is talking about. It was, you know, Ledger wouldn't allow that to happen if it was an uncarrier move. And so that maintaining velocity, creating velocity, easy, maintaining it really hard in big enterprises. And something, Todd, that was interesting to me when I joined T-Mobile is when you hear that, that it's a systematic, no compromises allowed model, which I think is pretty representative of, of the Amazon culture, that can sound like, well, that's off-putting. I don't know if I want to be involved in that. What I saw firsthand as soon as I joined T-Mobile is when people would talk about being on one of the teams that was launching one of these uncarrier moves, they talk about it as a highlight of their career. Like that environment of being able to move fast to maintain that velocity and to take big bets, but in the right ways. I mean, people loved it, right? And so sometimes it comes across as like, oh, that's going to be this demanding environment. Maybe it's not the right fit for my company. But when you talk to the people who are in the center of that, it's just an incredible career experience. And uh, I, I, was, I, I noticed that right off the bat when I joined T-Mobile. It sounds like it's empowering 
more than it is something that's a pressure cooker in the right circumstances. I, I would say it's and. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's both of those things. Yeah. You know, like there are high expectations and is demanding, but it's like a high caliber athletic event or adventure that you're on. It's all of those things, right? It's high stress, it's high demands, it's high expectations, but it's the best thing you've ever done. As you explain in the book, this comes against the backdrop of really an unprecedented era across three different points that you make. And I want to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here this week with John Rossman and Kevin McCaffrey, the authors of the new book, Big Bet Leadership, your transformation playbook for winning in the hyper-digital era. That subtitle refers to the backdrop for what we're dealing with here, the hyper-digital era. And it really struck me in the introduction to the book, there are three mega forces that you describe. Disruptive technologies, such as generative AI and quantum computing, the aging of America's workforce is the second. And then the third is the growth of spending on entitlement programs, such as Social Security and Medicare, as well as the cost of serving U.S. debt. I did not expect that last one. But then you go on to write, these mega forces will feed into each other like a vortex, building an overriding theme for business and society, that of a chaotic environment of dramatic change with successful business operators realizing productivity and cost model advantages that separate them from their competition. This is the case for making big bets. Yeah, it, it really is our, our forecast. And so it's a hypothesis and could be, could be wrong on this, but you know, the past 25, 30 years, you know, the, the Netscape IPO of August 8th, 1995 is kind of seen as the starting of the digital era. And there's been a lot of winners and losers since then, right? A lot of, a lot of change in business. But we believe that that past 25 years is going to pale in comparison for what's coming. And that the big difference we see is that the productivity levels within organizations, you are going to see companies who are built on a productivity basis that is 10 to 100x what nor it mm. would normally take to get the same type of productivity level today. And this poses both a great threat and a great opportunity. And that your best opportunity is to be an active skeptic. An active skeptic is somebody who doesn't believe all the hype, but spends resources and time to prove things out early so that you have the time and you're playing from a position of strength in order to then incorporate and find your best version of this to make business sense. And so for senior leaders of substantial organizations, this is hard to do. It's not the operational leadership that oftentimes got them into these roles. It's high risk for both the company and for their personal careers. And there's a right way to go about them so that you can both look for 
optimal ambition out of these? Like what compels us to do this, but minimize the downside risk? And it's kind of that tension between those two that we try to identify, isolate, provide both a strategy and a tactic in order to address it, because that's a very fine line. A lot of big companies, the way they manage risk is they pull back on ambition and they think success is delivering something close to on time and on budget. That's not, that's not success. Success is creating durable advantage for you in the marketplace, but that's not how most projects and programs are run at companies. That's not seen as the bar. And so true transformations, not everything is a big bet, right? Like, um, but true transformations have an ambition to them. And so this book is a, is a recipe for how to seize both the ambition and to manage the downside risk for the organization and for the leaders that are leading them. One of the points that you make is that this cannot be just part of the daily operations. You can't have somebody leading one of these big bet teams that is also distracted by a million other things in the operation. Speaking to your experience at T-Mobile, did they apply this or was this a lesson from their attempt to make big bets? I would say in a way both. When it came to launching gun carrier moves, people got pulled off their projects and their day-to-day work. And the main thing became the main thing, which was launching the uncarrier move. And they pulled the best people to be part of these uncarrier moves, not the most available people, which is important, right? Uh, So when it came to uncarrier moves, T-Mobile did a great job of kind of living up to this principle of clearing people's plates, letting them really focus on launching this uncarrier move and getting that work done. What John and I found was that outside of uncarry move constructs, trying to incubate bets in the background that were not part of the uncarry move machinery for the core wireless business, it wasn't always the case. And there were a whole set of kind of failed big bets, especially in trying to expand beyond core wireless, where if you looked at it, one of the key differences that you saw was between an uncarrier move and these other bets that didn't do so well was that the teams weren't fully dedicated. And oftentimes they weren't also staffed with maybe the best talent instead of maybe the most available talent. And so you could actually see that dichotomy internally within T-Mobile and the difference in results was was pretty striking and pretty obvious. And it's not just that the team is dedicated, but that you have, you know, Amazon has this term, you know, single threaded leader, right? Uh, Apple and others use directly responsible individual, same essence, which is a senior person who is committed and focused on this because speed is so critical. A mid-level program manager cannot get things moved within a significant organization at the speed in which these. So you actually need extremely not senior sponsorship. Yes, you need that, but that not that alone. You need senior dedicated people that are actually like completely committed to this to help clear all the debris and things that try to create this into a normal project and to try to avoid those things. And you see it play out in so many ways. It it seems small individually, but collectively make a big difference. So for example, if for the bet, a decision needs to be made and four EVPs need to be involved in the decision, when it's a big bet that's being approached in the right way, that decision meeting happens today or tomorrow. Other bets that I've seen is, well, we need these four EVPs. They each want to have a delegate. We need to get on the calendar. Maybe, maybe it'll be scheduled in three weeks, probably more like six weeks, right? And that six-week delay maybe feels innocuous at the time, but you add that up and it's a lot. Or, for example, you need to get something through procurement and you have to run through the traditional procurement cycles and that adds six to 12 
weeks of delay or more. Uh, and all of these things add up to massive delays and create this challenge of maintaining velocity. And if you want to be thinking big but betting small, what you want to be doing is running a lot of experiments. Every time you add to the cycle time for each experiment, the number of experiments you're going to get done in a year or two years, three years is dramatically impacted. It's, it's, it's reduced by like an order of magnitude. So again, that's what we've seen is when these go really well, it's everything is coming together to make decisions fast, but with high quality, no compromises. I want to circle back the mega forces that you talked about at the beginning. AI and quantum computing, the aging of the workforce, and then spending on entitlement programs, Medicare, and the cost of servicing the U.S. debt. Tell me more about those and how they provide the backdrop here. Yeah, each of those is an independent force to be reckoned with. But combined, it really creates a systems dynamic model where they feed into each other. Technology is really what enables the potential, but the motivation comes from the rare resources of labor, skilled labor that we're going to have. And so that's where the aging of a population, declining birth rates is playing a major factor in every significant company that I get involved with, like labor availability is the core constraint in the business. And then the allocation of committed spending from a federal basis, the only way to solve that problem is to grow productivity, to innovate within our economy. And those forces combine, like that's what creates the momentum around the flywheel of these. And so I don't see things as an isolated enabler or forcer, but I think combined. And then the the fuse that we tie those together with are the aggressive investors of venture capital, private equity, and the growing free cash flow from the big tech platforms. All of them are so highly incented to create these outrageous alpha-based outcomes out of companies like that's why i envision like oh yeah this is going to be a storm that builds on itself and is going to create the backdrop for you know why this next 25 years what you know i framed as the hyper digital era is going to be the past digital transition digital transformation era 10 to 100x so i have to tell you that reading one part of the book inspired me to do something for our own business here at GeekWire that I think might be an interesting thing to discuss as just an example, uh, uh -oh. briefly. <laughs> so I want to talk about that <laughs> when we come back. We'll be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here with John Rossman and Kevin McCaffrey. Their new book is Big Bet Leadership, Your Transformation Playbook for Winning in the Hyper-Digital Era. It's out February 27th. All right, John and Kevin. So one of the points that you make in the book is if you're going to do something radically different, make a big bet, you need to create an alternate universe, not only in leadership, but also just digitally, like it's much better if you're going to do a complete overhaul of a website, for example, to do it 
on a different digital domain to start with. So I was thinking about this. I was reading your book over the weekend and I did a search and I realized geekwire.ai was available as a domain, which frankly we should have owned anyway, right? And I thought, I have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but I went ahead and I bought it. Obviously, we don't have the breadth of leadership in our organization to <laughs> siphon off somebody to focus on that necessarily. Maybe we do, who knows? But that was my just small little uh, call to action that I took from your book. The chapter is around opening moves and these very predictable factors that you know are going to slow you down. So let's address them upfront. And some of them are tech environment related of, you know, having a an area where you can quickly iterate data, technology, experiments, algorithms, all of these things. But it doesn't stop at just the technology. Kevin mentioned a, a big one, which is around procurement policies, HR policies, IT policies, like you name the policy. All of those are engineered for a scaled business to try to optimize for typically kind of risk versus unit costs. When you're running a big bet, you're trying to optimize for something different, which is speed, speed to learning, right? Speed to experimentation. And so the key goal is predict that these things are going to happen. We know they're going to happen. Engage with those stakeholders early. Understand we're running a different game here. And so we need some different rules in order to be successful. And so if you are actually good at your job of running big bets, you know where these things are. And there's a set of them that you can get ahead of and you know, try to avoid the avoidable issues in life, right? Our emphasis is that that it's oftentimes the role of a senior executive, and yet it gets delegated down to the team who's running the big bet. And if your job is to both run the big bet and try to overhaul procurement policies, that's not going to work, right? So this is where the executives in charge need to play a role in proactively clearing the path before the team gets going, because if they're trying to clear the path of all this corporate bureaucracy and manage the big bet, high chance of failure. Another takeaway that I had was that writing is very important. And this gets back to some of the Amazon principles you outline in the first section of the book, a series of memos that people should embark upon laying the foundation, building the framework for the big bet that they're about to take. And, and to your point earlier, John, part of it is making sure that you understand the risk fully and critically before you jump in and make the bet. And, and bring them forward to, and figure out how do I test those, placing constraints so that it's like, okay, we're only going to deal with the top three to five high risk. Well, then I have to make choices. Well, what are the real risks relative here? And, you know, Amazon famous kind of six page narrative, future press release, FAQ, even AWS does this, like they try to skip to just the future press release and FAQ. And you can do that on well understood kind of incremental innovation, but that's not a big bet, right? A big bet is a high potential, high risk endeavor. You have to do all the background work that's behind the narrative process in order to be good at crafting the kind of the end product, which is the future press release. And that's really what we broke open was the narrative process. We segmented it out for organizations and teams that don't have the benefit of that culture and, and all the learned experiences at Amazon and how to do a narrative. We kind of broke it up into a set of memos with some very specific steps, but we're always applying constraints to it, right? The number that you do, the speed at which you do it with, because 
analysis paralysis is actually the, you know, there's always multiple dangers that you're residing on here, right? It's you're on a fine line. And so not having enough critical thinking, that's one danger. The other danger is analysis paralysis. And so we're always figuring out how do you do these things at speed to keep pace going. But it struck me as I was reading the parts about the memos, and you actually have an addendum at the end about the importance of writing. We're in this new era where we take it from the original generative pre-trained transformer, our brains, and turn it over to an artificial generative pre-trained transformer, GPT. And we're not going through the process of thought that leads to the insights. We're turning it over to a machine. This seems like one area where using AI as a shortcut actually is counterproductive. I would halfway agree with you. And and so in the book, we're committing to a number of resources and tools of, available to readers. And, and so we have a set of tools like all the templates, all the journals, all the things you need to do, as well as custom GPT and some prompts to go along with it. And the way we look at it is what this can do is be the best ideation partner for you and can help speed up some of the finished product and help you see differences. But you absolutely cannot delegate the thinking to whether it's a GPT or to your management consultant, right? Either one of those right. is, a, is, a, is a form of outsourcing the thinking. And we don't believe in that. And so we believe like the senior team has to grok. Grok means to truly understand something. You have to grok the insight because these are the fine line differences between really good ideas versus the dreamy business, the really the right idea to pursue. That's what draws upon senior leadership experience. And, you know, what I saw at Amazon and, and what you see leaders like Elon Musk doing is like, they understand the details and the risks, and they are the forcing function, making the clear-eyed design choices or trade-off decisions that need to be made. They do not delegate those things. They do not delegate the thinking to those things. And so, again, we're balancing the tensions between speed, all the other parts of their job they need to do, how to equip senior leaders to do that part of their job uh, better than they can typically do today. What about the other big trend? hybrid work, not being in person. Do you have thoughts on how remote work versus in the office impacts a team's ability to plan and execute a big bet? You know, Todd, I'll actually bring this back to the what we we're just discussing around memo writing. In my opinion, it actually ups the importance of developing that skill because so many times PowerPoints don't really tell the story. They rely so much on the in-person presentation and the voiceover. If you have a really great memo that's really well written, people should be able to read it and respond to it asynchronously, which actually enables remote work in a way that is challenging if you're trying to do all of that via PowerPoint. So my opinion is that as remote work becomes entrenched and becomes the new norm, if that is the case, memos become even more important to make sure that you maintain clarity in a way that is really hard to do through PowerPoint. You can do it through PowerPoint, but it takes a different skill and some real effort that often just doesn't make its way there. I mean, Todd, think about your own work. It's like when you have something really hard that you need to get through, what do you do? You turn off phone, you turn off email, you turn off all this interrupt driven. Well, that's not what happens in most organizations. And so these memos are a vehicle and a forcing function to help get into those that stoic, thoughtful moments to really 
think through hard business challenges, which is the heart of what a big bet is. And so I don't have too much thoughts about kind of remote versus in-person, but I do have thoughts about the interrupt-driven society and workplaces that we have and that that creates such a toxic environment for actually thinking things through that are vital to the business and understanding when can we be sloppy? When can we operate kind of high speed, high interrupt versus creating the space and the time and the vehicle for being thoughtful about the decisions and the choices we're making? We're focused on the latter there. And this is the right way to do it in my experience. Yeah. And I, I would just add to that, you know, we've both discussed Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, that gets into that dynamic of needing to actually find time to think deeply about big problems and not get caught up in this meeting cycle where you're going from one meeting to the next meeting, the next meeting, the next meeting. Oftentimes there are discussion meetings, not decision meetings, and having that time. So I think and Slack and email interrupting you throughout exactly. all of those meetings. So so whether whether you're in person or at home, making the space for that deep thinking is something that's really important. It should be easier to do at home, but my experience at Google was it wasn't. It wasn't. I would have thought that, okay, I'm working remotely. There's not all of these distractions. And yet I found myself struggling because there was just one meeting after another on your calendar, and there are these Google video conference meetings. And it was so easy to go from one to the next because you didn't even need to budget any time for to walk to the other building. That maybe even gave you a second to think and collect your thoughts before the next meeting. It was just so easy to have one after another after another. So whether remote or in person, I think carving out that dedicated like thinking time is probably the most important thing to do. Bill Gates used to take think weeks. Do you remember that? Yeah, he used to go out to Hood Canal. I think he still does. Exactly. Does he yeah, still? Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he wouldn't read PowerPoints. He would read memos, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. And like re- full on voluminous research yeah, reports. That's right. Yeah. Books right. and research reports. And yeah. Yeah. Throughout the book, some of the examples that you cite include SpaceX, Elon Musk, T-Mobile, John Ledger, Satya Nadella, Microsoft, Jeff Bezos, Amazon. At the end of the book, you bring up Walmart, Netflix, IBM has made a number of big bets over the years and is now currently embarked on another in the era of quantum and AI. When you look at the landscape today of companies that are currently making big bets or thinking about big bets that have yet to see their outcome, which are the most interesting to you? Which are you watching most closely? And what do you think about it? uh, um, I think the most interesting opportunities are in mid-market companies who have analog products and services and are trying to figure out how to infuse those with the best digital or AI capabilities and to transition their business models. And we wrap up the book with, you know, a quote from Doug McMillan, CEO of of Walmart about like their culture is naturally not a risk-taking culture. He's not a risk-taker. But for this company to continue to be around, they have to become more risk-oriented, take more swings. And I think that's really the nature of kind of the ending advice of do your job, be an active skeptic, which is an active skeptic goes out, they develop a hypothesis about what the future is, and they figure out fast, effective, low-risk ways to test that out before they make big commitments. And that's the summary of the philosophy behind the book. What I'm always really interested in is, as we've discussed, 
Big Bet legends do a good job of systematizing their approach to big bets. And it's always really fascinating to me to watch the transitions from leadership. So if we think about Steve Jobs to Tim Cook, we think about John Ledger to Mike Seaver, as we think about Jeff Bezos to Andy Jassy, I'm really interested in that the resiliency of those original operating models. What I've seen at T-Mobile, for example, is that Mike Seaver is absolutely carrying the torch of continuing that philosophy at T-Mobile. I think maybe a bit of a perspective, where's, which direction is it going at Amazon? Have they gotten a little bit into the think big, bet, bet big mentality and maybe a little bit of that? that I, old, I, I think it's been more of a correction period of- Most recently. Of yeah. Rationalizing some things that were think big, bet big and re-rationalizing back and everything. But I think that's the- the hallmark of a true system, which is it does transition beyond, you know, leadership transitions. Watching the resiliency of these systems during uh, leadership transitions is interesting to me. And then the other one is always these kind of nascent big betters. Are they going to become repeat achievers or is it going to be kind of the one trick pony? And looking at NVIDIA and what they've done today, like, are they going to be able to come up with the pipeline of bets? I mean, what their performance has done to sustain that performance and to keep it going, they're going to have to place big bets. And that's hard to do in this environment. I made a more critical reference to Microsoft earlier in that Gates and Ballmer in particular would talk over the years about betting the company. But if you look at the history of Microsoft, you talk about repeat achievers on this front, DOS, Windows, Windows Server, the cloud, now AI, you can see the direct line from that. Those were big bets. They were, and you know, I'm not an expert in the reset at Microsoft, but one of the things that you've seen is, as Satya would say, a reset from a know-it-all company to a learn-it-all company. And an experimenter is, by nature, a more humble position to take, which is, I don't know it all. I'm going to figure out how to test it. And experimentation typically always goes from failure to success and not the other way around. And, and I think that's what I've seen with his kind of cultural reset, which is, how do we apply the great resources and advantages of Microsoft, but continue to take some strikes, figure it out, and then figure out how to scale. And honestly, I would I would see what they've done with OpenAI as a way of like, hey, we're, we're placing a bet here, a side bet. It seems to be winning, but th that's not their final move, right? And so, you know, they're figuring out what their next move is by incrementalizing their approaches to how they make these investments. An interesting comment I came across as attributed to Satya recently was a belief that they shouldn't have given up on the Windows phone, hmm. which I thought was interesting because oftentimes the story goes that Satya was about going all in on cloud. And at the end of his tenure, Balmer was pushing for the Nokia acquisition and the Windows phone, and that was a big failure. Cloud was the big success. But in retrospect, it sounds like Satya is saying, no, like giving up on having that, that mobile device in owning the ecosystem and the operating system there might have been a mistake. So I think that's actually an interesting lesson as well that Satya could recognize sometimes you fail at a big bet, but it's the right move strategically and you have to stick to it. Um, and that's one of the things we talk about in our book about continue kill pivot or confusion, which is when there's a strategic imperative associated with the space, it's okay to pivot and it's important to pivot. But it's important not to give up. It's important to stay active in that space. And that's something that, for example, John was the part of the third team at Amazon to get Marketplace right. Amazon didn't give up on Marketplace. They failed twice. 
but they didn't give up because they saw it as so foundationally important to the future of the company that they kept at it. So that was a pretty interesting comment that I saw uh, attributed to Satya in the last few weeks. Continue, kill, pivot. Or confusion. Or confusion. So, so these high-stake meetings where you're coming together and it's like, okay, what do we do going forward? You know, you, you essentially have three options. Do we kill it? Do we pivot? Or do we continue it? But what typically happens because you don't have good recognition of the moment. You don't have good hygiene around the decision. Like there's typically kind of confusion that comes out of it. And so people don't really think that that's an option, but that's typically what happens. And so these are the high stakes meetings on big bets. And we give both some principles and tactics around how to approach those so that you have better decision-making processes being made and that you're focusing on the real priorities in those meetings and you don't succumb to the relatively easy but lazy things of kind of critiquing how you got here and things like that. There's a time and a place for that, but that's not the decision we're making here today. One of the things I like is that you give specific advice for those kinds of meetings and others such as giving people three realistic options to choose from when you're pitching other senior leaders or other people at the company on an idea. A lot of times people will do what you call in the book, the Goldilocks approach, where they clearly want to lead you to an optimal solution of their own because the other two kind of suck. (laughs) So I really liked how prescriptive it was. I learned things, frankly, that I think I'll end up applying to my own interactions, even if I'm not involved in a big bet. There's so many counterintuitive insights that people get wrong relative to big bets. You think what you want to do early in a big bet is that you want to have agreement. Actually, what you want to do is you want to take advantage of the senior leaders around the table and you want to hear their concerns about it. Like, like, But you have to do the job better than just presenting one version of the future and asking them, well, you know, what's wrong with it? Well, that's an unfair question, right? So our approach is kind of this three futures memo of giving three realistic options, not too cold, too hot. Well, of course, it's just in the middle there. That's the Goldilocks solution. You have to give three realistic futures. And that helps them do their job of telling you their real concerns and insights. Because we're early doing it, guess what we have the opportunity to do? Now we have the opportunity to test it, to really engage with the stakeholder. And so again, like most people think like, oh, I want to get agreement. No, 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 no. You want to hear their real concerns early so that you can deal with it. And you're taking advantage of why this person is at the senior leadership table, because I'm assuming they know they have insights that I want to take advantage of. This really pairs with what John mentioned earlier about our opening moves chapter, which is there are certain dynamics that you know are going to slow down the big bet. So get in front of those and address them proactively. But the three futures memo is really about there are certain dynamics that you don't know are going to slow down your big bet. Part of the goal of the three futures memo is to surface those hidden sources of misalignment so that you can see them, and then you can actually address them. You don't want them to remain hidden. There's the ones in opening moves you know are there, but this is really about the unknown unknowns, right? And how do you surface those in the the Three Futures memo is one of the techniques that we recommend for doing that. The book is Big Bet Leadership, your transformation playbook for winning in the hyper-digital era. John Rossman and Kevin McCaffrey, thank you very much for speaking with me about it. Thanks for inviting us, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can subscribe to the GeekWire podcast in your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review. Our show this week is edited by Kurt Milton. Until next time, I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll talk to you next week on GeekWire.